Let's pray together. Our Father, we look to all creation and we see that you are the one who has designed, created, and order all things. And indeed, your name is majestic in all the earth and throughout the heavens. And all creation gives you praise and glory. When we look at the works that you have done, we wonder how you could even notice us. And yet, you have redeemed us out of darkness, brought us to your light, out of sin, and brought us into your righteousness, Lord Jesus, out of death, into life abundant and everlasting. And so, oh God, we praise you and thank you that you have taken us out of our bondage and our sin, and you have made a covenant with us through the blood of Jesus Christ, and you have placed your law within us, and you have written it upon our hearts, and you are our God, and we are your people. And so, Lord, give us a desire to know you more. The power of your salvation, the fellowship, even of your sufferings, Lord Jesus. We count it all joy that we might know you more. And as we have gathered here this morning from many places, many walks of life, we who are your children are a family with you. You are our Father Christ, our great elder brother. And we are your children and brothers and sisters together. So we lift up praise to your name, O God, as your children, as your family. And so hear our prayers. We offer them up in accordance with your will. Hear our singing. We give our songs up to you from hearts that have been redeemed and hearts full of joy. Speak to us through your word as we read it together and as it is proclaimed in just a little while. Thank you, O God, that you have noticed us and that you have redeemed us and made us who once were not a people. Now we are the people of God. We give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I have your Bible with you. Would you open it to the Gospel of Matthew? First book of the New Testament, if you don't have a Bible with you or if you don't own one, there should be one near you in the pew rack. Feel free to take it and uh, use it, and if you uh, need it, you may take it home and make it your very own to read and to uh, grow closer uh, to the Lord. As we've been in Matthew chapter 12, we have... uh, Really, Matthew for us has just shown that Jesus is all that we need. It's it's an amazing chapter. You go back, and I would encourage you to read through it because we, we tend to look at it on the negative side because Matthew's showing us here that the... Uh, uh, antagonism of the Pharisees and the religious leaders is beginning to to grow. And we kind of concentrate on that and we kind of look at that and we see that, but but he is just presenting us time and again as the great king who has come. And that's the purpose of the whole gospel, is to show us the great king, the one who is truly worthy of all worship and honor and praise, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And so as we look, we need to guard our hearts because we don't ever want to become pharisaical, so consumed with legalism and following rules that we forget that the one who is greater than the Sabbath, the fulfillment of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ has come. And he has made us, we who are his children, he has made us his own. And he has said to you who have gathered here, who have never come to to faith in Christ or repentance, come unto me. 
If you're weary of trying to to earn your righteousness and earn your way to God, that's an impossibility. Come to me. And to hear the gospel, and perhaps you have heard it before, and now you're hearing it again, and you will hear it again and again. But my great prayer is that the Spirit of God would soften your heart. Because as we look, we see that the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders who should have known exactly who Jesus was, the promised Messiah, the coming King, the Savior of the nation, but the Savior of the world, they should have recognized him and they are continually rejecting him no matter what miracles he does, no matter what truths he teaches, no matter what grace and love he displays, they are continuing to reject him and their hearts are hardening and hardening and hardening to the point that Jesus says they accused him of of, of casting out uh, demons which is doing the work of the Lord to to loosen the grip of Satan in lives accusing him of doing that by the power of the devil and he warns them he warns them If you blaspheme against me in my humanity, that is forgivable. When one repents, having rejected the truth of Christ, when one repents, salvation is possible. But that continued hardening of the heart to the point that you resist the wooing of the Holy Spirit of God, that is unforgivable. Because there is only one way for your sins to be forgiven. And that is through the accomplished work and life and death and resurrection and ascension and now intercession of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is salvation no other way. And when you reject the wooing of the Spirit of God through the Word of God and you finally get to the point that you say, I've had enough of that, then forgiveness it's become impossible. Oh, I plead with you. As if the Lord himself were pleading. Don't resist him. Don't harden your heart. Don't turn away from the truth of salvation. That which we have just celebrated in the birth of Christ. I don't want to be like a Pharisee following rules and regulations and forgetting to care about the people. They didn't care about the people. All they cared about is that they looked good. All they cared about was their power base and all of these things. And here is Jesus presenting truth after truth after truth. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, demon harangued people are delivered. The poor have good news preached to them and the Pharisees were so hardened that they refused to submit. In fact, They determined that it was time for him to be removed. It was time for him to die. We come this morning to verse 38. God willing, we'll get down to the end of the chapter this morning. And and, and it's really kind of striking. They're accusing him of doing all of these works and and wonderful things by by the power of Satan. And then it says, read with me, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. (laughs) I'm sorry, that's just crazy talk. Let's read on. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it, uh, to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Father, grant us understanding by your Spirit that which we have read and that into which we are looking and peering, struggling to understand. Meet the need of every heart, O God. Draw sinners to yourself for salvation. Correct the path of those who are your own and bring us all into union together as your children, as your people. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, as I indicated when I read that first verse that we read, it just seems like an odd thing to, to, to ask for a sign, especially in light of all of the things that he has just been doing. And then the casting out of this demon, whereby the man who was unable to see and the man who was unable to speak is now seeing and speaking. And first they accuse him of doing it by the power of the devil. And now they say to him, we want to see a miracle that can only come from God. Luke's account of this gives us their motive a little bit more clearly uh, than, than Matthew. Uh, Luke's record tells us that they desired a sign from heaven, but some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him. There's the key. To test him kept seeking a sign from heaven. But they become so hardened, so hardened, that no sign would have convinced them. It would not have mattered what Jesus did. It would not have convinced these hard-hearted religious types. Later in Luke, uh, Luke's gospel, you have the, the record of, uh, of the man, the rich man and Lazarus. And how uh, when Lazarus died, he went uh, into uh, the presence of Abraham. And the rich man went into torment. And, and since he could not be delivered from there, and, and, and he asked even for Lazarus uh, to come and, and bring him just a drop of, of water to cool his tongue. And that was not possible for a great gulf had been fixed. And, 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 and he, he goes on and he asks, please send someone to my brothers that they will repent and not come to a place like this. And Abraham, in that telling of, the, of this story, Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And in telling that, Jesus was referring to himself. Search the law. Search Moses' writing. Search the prophets. And there you will find me. But they were so hardened that even when Jesus was risen from the dead, they refused to believe him. 
It didn't matter what sign Jesus did. That is how hardened they had become. That's a scary place to be. It's a frightening place to be. To where you know the truth of God, you just refuse to receive it. And Christians, I I just stopped to warn us. We know the truth of God, and He would use His Word and the teaching of it and the reading of it and the fellowship of, 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 of the church together to bring us more and more and more into His righteousness. But when we know how it is that we should live and we refuse to do so, we are saying by our lives that we don't care what God says. We don't care what the law says. We don't care what Jesus says. And that's, that's a lost person's testimony. Christians, the call of Christ is to follow me and to obey me. That last verse we read, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, those are the ones that are in my redeemed family. And so they wanted a sign from heaven. Any of y'all ever asked for something like that? Be honest. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your honesty. God, if you really want me to do this, just give me a sign. Put put a message in the sky. Do something. I I foolishly, in in my younger years, did such things. And And we have the message that we need from God here. It is the Word of God. And so they demand a sign from heaven. What does Jesus give them? He gives them a sign from the prophet Jonah, the Word of God. Jesus didn't work miracles on demand. He didn't do so then. He does not do so now. He was not some lapdog trying to get him to perform tricks for an audience. And particularly, he would not do so for those who were skeptical, those who hated him. You would recall that when Jesus was enduring the mockery of trial after trial after trial before his crucifixion, that one of the trials which he had to undergo was that he was sent to Herod, the so-called king of the Jews. And it says when Herod saw Jesus, this is in Luke chapter 23, verses 8 and 9, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. Why? Because he wanted to be saved from his sin? He wanted to know the fulfillment of all of prophecy? No. No. For he had long desired to see Jesus because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. This wouldn't be entertained. Human beings, they love being entertained. So many go to church nowadays just to be entertained. To see the show that is put on, either by the, the, the band that is playing, or, or, or the lights that are showing, or the preacher who is, is, is exclaiming things. To be entertained. You want to be entertained? Go home, turn on your television, and sit there. But we come together to worship. We come together to reflect back to God the glory that is rightfully His as He shines upon us. It's not about entertainment. Herod just wanted, and when Jesus would not speak, Herod just sent Him back to Pilate. Asked Him questions, and He made no answer. You see, the Pharisees and Herod, they had evil intent, and they had no faith. And so Jesus said, verses 39 and 40, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. As he's denouncing this generation as evil and and adulterous. It was because of their unwillingness to believe him and the truth of God. They would create God in their own image. They would worship God their way, not God's designed way. He says, no sign will be given. That's future tense. 
future tense. There will be no sign forthcoming except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus was looking toward this increasing rejection by the people, by the religious leaders, so much to the point that they would get the Romans involved and literally take the life of the Son of God. And this is the first time in Matthew that Jesus referred directly to his coming death. It's very, very clear there. Three days and three nights, that is, a, uh, that is an idiom for a portion of a calendar day. So many people are trying to say, well, if, it, if it's three days and, and three nights, and he must have been crucified on, on Thursday, and, 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 and or, no, a part of a day is considered a day. So if he was in the grave, uh, as, as he was laid in the tomb on Friday night, and he was there on Saturday, and he was still there Sunday before he rose, it's three days. It's just a part, it's just an, an idiom. We don't have to see any contradiction in chronology in Scripture. People are always trying to look for some way to, 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 to find Scripture in error. You don't have to, to, to change the chronology. You don't have to propose another timeline. And Jesus is saying, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man. That's the only sign. And the big fish parallels, three days parallels with that period of, of Jesus' death. And that's the only sign that the Jews were going to receive, in addition to the signs that they had already seen. I mean, the amazing things that he already done and the teaching that he's given whereby the people exclaim, nobody's ever taught like this before. The only sign that they would be given would be his death and his resurrection. But even his resurrection would not change the hearts of those who had blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. It would not compel belief in their hearts. Jesus goes on talking about Jonah's ministry. If you recall uh, the Lord uh, wanted to send or told Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach uh, the gospel of repentance. And, and Jonah didn't want to go. He didn't want to go. Out of fear, out of uh, knowledge that God would ultimately lose, use the Assyrians, and Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, to, to eradicate God's people in the future. Whatever it was, Jonah just didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. And that just speaks volumes to us. Here was the man of God, didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. In fact, he ran so hard the other way that God had to use extraordinary means to arrest him in his tracks and get his attention. He sends a, a terrific storm to the point that, that, that uh, the people on the ship think they're, they're, they're going to sink. And they know that they've displeased some God somewhere. And they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah, and Jonah said, yes, I'm the problem here. My God is the creator of heaven and earth. My God is the creator of the sea. My God is the controller of the storms. My God is the great God, and, 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 and I am running from him. And they didn't want to do it, but the only way that they could calm the storm was to give the sea what it wanted, to give God what it wanted, Jonah. And he sent a great fish to rescue Jonah from drowning and kept him for three days, expelled him upon the beach. And Jonah finally said, okay, I'll go do what God wanted me to do. And he walked through the city, that great city. He walked a day's journey in and just began to, to proclaim the necessity of repentance. Unless you repent from your sin and turn to God, you will be destroyed. That's the gospel. But our gospel is come to Christ out of the storm, 
He is our refuge from the storm. And the king of Nineveh heard it. And he put on sackcloth and ashes signs of, of mourning. And he sat in the dust. And he repented. And he commanded all of the people to come to repentance. And they responded. And some have said, well, it was only a temporary thing. No, that was permanent for that generation. Yes, in the ensuing generations, God would use Assyria as the hammer to break apart the northern kingdom. Yes, but at this juncture in time, there were 120,000 souls redeemed. That's tremendous. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And you Pharisees, you're worse off than those Ninevites because they heeded the warning of the wrath that was to come and they repented and turned to God. He says, they believed Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The fulfillment of the gospel is here. The fulfillment of all prophecy is here. He says the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You can find the account. This is the queen of Sheba. And Sheba was a part of Arabia. And it was deep south from Jerusalem. 1,200 miles she came. And after uh, uh, Solomon had consolidated the kingdom and he had built and dedicated the temple and he was ruling and word just went out to the ends of the earth of the wisdom of Solomon and the greatness of God. If you've got a moment, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10. Now, I want you to listen as we read this, because I want you to listen to the motive of the queen of Sheba when she came, because her motive aligns itself with the Pharisees very, very clearly. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with very great retinue with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all of her questions, for there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. In other words, she was just astonished. No more riddles. No more trick questions trying to stump Solomon. She received his wisdom as truth. And she said to the king, the report I heard was true in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I didn't believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I had. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who is delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. 
The wisdom of Solomon convinced her, convinced her of the greatness of God, of the greatness of the wisdom of God. She declares that the one true God is worthy. And while we, we are not told directly anywhere that she believed, Jesus says here that she will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? Because through Solomon and Solomon's wisdom, she heard the truth and was convinced of the truth of the one true and living God. And here these Pharisees are asking the same quiet kinds of questions but when they receive the answer, whatever the answer might have been, they twist it and turn it into something evil and satanic, and they reject it. And they continue on, whereas she was convinced by Solomon. And, and Jesus says, something greater than Solomon is here. More wisdom. He is the fount of all wisdom. And those Gentiles from Nineveh and, 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 and she from Sheba and the others who repented will join with believers of all time and every place on judgment day to condemn all who reject Jesus Christ. And the fate of these religious leaders is all the more tragic because the Gentiles in Jonah's and Solomon's time believe after hearing a lesser spokesman Jonah was a lesser spokesman. Solomon, as wise as he was, was a lesser spokesman. But this generation who was refusing to believe was hearing the one who was greater than all, who walked among them. And now, by the Spirit of God, empowering the Word of God, it goes forth and it strikes hearts. And it fills hearts. But any other practice, any accounting of your own righteousness in your person, in your flesh, without Christ, is, is, is empty. He goes in, in, in verse 43, and he returns in, in a way to the incident that started all of this, the casting out of the demon that had rendered the man blind and unable to speak. And I believe that this statement that he is making here, the little parable that he tells here, is for that man and for all others who were present to realize that freedom from the oppression of the demonic is not enough. Ownership by the devil must be replaced by ownership of Christ. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house. I'll return to the, the man out of which I was, was cast. And he comes back and he finds the man able to see, he finds the man able to hear, he finds the man sit, sitting in his, his right mind. The house is empty. That's the key. It's been swept clean. There's been moral reform. You can work all you want at, at reforming yourself, doing the things that look righteous, and, and try to eradicate all manner of evil that is within you. But if the house that you that is you is empty, then the demon returns. And not only does he return, he brings more. And that number seven, all together, declares the person irredeemable. They enter and they dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So will it be with this generation? 
And you and I can try to reform ourselves all we want, but unless the Spirit of God indwells you, unless by the power of, of the Spirit you are filled to overfilling with the Spirit of Christ, then you are empty and you will return to your sin. You will return like a dog to its vomit, like a swine to its sty. It's temporary. All moral fixes are just temporary. We need Christ. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, What then? We've been redeemed. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. May it never be. God forbid that we would do that. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free, you have become slaves of righteousness. The Spirit of God indwells us. We have been delivered no longer to serve sin, no longer to serve self, no longer to serve Satan. But now we live to serve and obey the Lord and to serve Christ. Satan always returns to an empty house to attack whatever's left. Whatever is not defended by Christ. And every time he is successful in, 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 in the life of one who, who reforms themselves, every time he's successful, he becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. The same is true of a widespread, degenerate state of repeated sin. It renders human beings more and more desensitized to their guilt. And the rest that the evil spirit was looking for was to bring turmoil into the life of a person. But the rest that Jesus offers is to bring peace and joy in the Sabbath rest that Christ offers. Matthew will continue to demonstrate the truth of, of these verses as, as, as he depicts the degenerating state of the religious leaders as they hate Christ more and more and more. And then it seems like just a big change of gears, doesn't it, that Matthew gives us to close out the chapter. But it is a beautiful conclusion to the presentation of the, the greatness of the king. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus' mother, Mary, was, was outside with her other children. Don't, don't buy in to the Catholic lie that, that, that Mary remained a virgin all of her days. She and Joseph had other children together. And they are the half-brothers of Jesus because Joseph was only Jesus' adoptive father. God in heaven, the father in heaven was his father. So these are his half-brothers, James and Joseph, Simon and Judas. And they've been trying to get through the crowd into the house in order to, to speak with him. So Jesus finds out that they're outside, and, and, and he doesn't directly address the family, but he says kind of a shocking thing. 
who, who are my mother and, and brothers? What is he saying? Is he saying that the human family wasn't important? No. What he was saying is that human kinship does not take priority over spiritual kinship. Neither Mary nor the brothers had yet come to faith in Jesus the Christ. He calls his true disciples his brothers. Saying that a true disciple is one who obeys the commands by what? By following Christ. By obeying Christ. And while Matthew doesn't tell us what Mary thought of, of, of her unusual son at, at this point in his, in his ministry, the most natural understanding that we have from over in Mark chapter 3, 21, is that she was among the ones who thought Jesus was crazy. At this juncture, she thought he was out of his mind. They wanted to take him home and put cold compresses on his head and get him away from the public because he, it was just crazy talk. They had not yet come to faith. They were not yet his followers. And so he says, in, 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 in keeping with what we are talking about here, the life that is indwelled by the Spirit, the life that has come by repentance to faith in, in me... These, these 12, well, actually 11, these 11, because Judas doesn't count, these 11 are my brothers, my sisters, my true spiritual family. Believers are those who should care for each other. Believers are those who would care for one another as Christ has cared for them. That's the beauty of the Christian community. We are children of one Father, God. We have an elder brother, the Lord Jesus, who has accomplished all righteousness for us. Paul wrote later of, 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 of the evangelistic potential of displaying to the world, of the church displaying to the world this, this family-like unity. Even where Jews and Gentiles were able to come together. Ephesians chapter 3. Let me read it for you just real quickly. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. This mystery is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body as, as we Jews, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of His power. To me though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities even in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This is the design of God from before the foundations of the world that he would redeem for himself a people, that they would be his children, that we would be a family of God, and that we would display the truth of Christ to the ends of the earth and show by our character and our relationships and our unity in Christ exactly what the people of God can be like. And this should draw people to us. Church is not going to attract people when they're divided. Church is not going to attract people when they're cold and uncaring. That was the Pharisees. 
They were cold and uncaring. They didn't care about anybody else. They didn't care about that man that that needed to be delivered from the, the demon. They didn't care about the people because they were ignorant and beneath them. Folks, we can never get that attitude. We must care about the lost. We must care about the poor. We must care about the lost. We go forth together, united in Christ. We declare the gospel. And for you, who have grown weary trying to be good enough to please God with your works of righteousness. Again, I make a plea to you, come to rest. Come to Christ, for he is the one who is here, who is greater than the temple with all of its bloody sacrifices and splendor. Come to the one who is only the one who has perfect righteousness. Perfect sacrifice. Our perfect high priest. Come to the great king. One greater than David. The one who rules in righteousness. And protects the souls of his subjects. Come to the one who is greater than Satan. Who would have you and keep you. Come to the one who is greater than the prophets who proclaimed the coming of someone, but now we know who he is, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Messiah, King, and Lord of Lords. Come to the one who is the fount of wisdom, greater than Solomon in all of his wisdom. Come to the one who has the wisdom of truth and the wisdom of God. Come to the one who is greater than any religiosity. Come to the one who makes relationships possible within the body of Christ. Folks, we don't need empty religion. We need an intimate relationship with the Lord. And that takes place by this inner transformation of His Spirit who comes and indwells us and fills us so that we do not uh, go back We do not become worse than we were before. This one, the Lord Christ has made us family together. He is our elder brother. He is the one who perfectly accomplished all that we cannot do, passing from this life into the portals of of, of heaven itself so that we might join him there. He alone is righteous. He alone has kept God's law perfectly. He alone defeated Satan and overcame sin by his vicarious death for us and has risen from the grave and earned for us everlasting life. This is Christ. And as we begin this year, we celebrate the king. The wise men came on Epiphany. January the the 5th by our calendar, the 12th and final day of Christmas, they came seeking the king. And they found him. And they presented to him rich gifts. Come to the king and present to him your life, all that you have and all that you are. For he has offered you salvation. He has offered you true family, spiritual family. And he's offered that to all who would believe upon his name. Would you bow with me this morning? And the clarion call of the gospel continues to go out from the ages past through uh, the Old Testament prophets, through John the Baptist, proclaimed by Christ himself, proclaimed by his apostles in the generations that has followed, and that message has reached your ears this day. If you are here and you have never come to faith in Christ, why are you delaying? There is salvation nowhere else. There's nothing greater. Whatever you can think of, Christ has come, and he is greater than whatever it is you can imagine. Come to him. And if that is the desire of your heart, I would, I would just encourage you in this very moment to stand up 
and walk out the doors that are directly opposite of me, and there's someone there who can help you come to a clearer understanding of what this gospel means, of what repentance means, of what true faith means. For if the Spirit of God is wooing and working in you, then today is the day of your salvation. And for we who have been grafted in to Christ, we who have been brought in by the power of the Spirit, we who have joined together from every walk and background of life, from every tribe and every nation, both in this congregation and congregations to the ends of the earth, we have been made family together. And Christ is our older brother, having accomplished for us all that we've needed. And so, are you keeping your eyes upon him? Are you looking at him, at his life as it is portrayed in the scripture? Do you understand it by the power of his spirit? And have, have you just grown a little cold? You've grown a little weary from all of the frustrations of life? And you just about decided to give it all up. But because you are indwelled by the spirit of God, he will keep you and will not let you go. But he desires you to walk in obedience because that's what his children do. He has offered to you salvation and you have received it, Christian. He has offered to you the gift of true family. Be a part in that. Share your gifts together. Let's minister together for the growth of the kingdom and the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Father, thank you that you have revealed your truth to people like us. That seeing we have actually understood because your spirit has explained Christ to us and Christ has explained you, oh Father, to us. I praise you. I give you glory. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, for any who are here who need your salvation, oh God, draw them to yourself, we pray, that they might increase our family, increase your kingdom, and that they may escape the judgment that is to come and have an abundant and eternal life with you, Lord Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.